You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week, we hope. It is the end of June, so we are a month away from NFL camps opening. We're a month away from uh, fall camps opening for college football. We're going to jump right in with our guest. Let's just go for it. Joining us now is the Mercurial wide receiver and return man from The Rock. That's right, Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania, Jermaine Wynn Jr. Jermaine, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. Last year season, D2 got canceled. Previous year, you were like, you made every All-American list, one of the top receivers in the country, put up some crazy stats, you know, 95 receptions, nearly 1,400 yards, 15 touchdowns. I mean, just all the numbers in the world. And then all of a sudden, you don't play. COVID comes. What did you do this year to stay active, to stay in shape, stay engaged? Like you said, coming off such a, a great season where uh, I achieved so much and I accomplished everything that I wanted to, I think for the most part, it kind of just killed momentum for me. You know, I, I felt like I was at a great place as an athlete. Uh, I felt like my body was progressing the right way. And, and then, you know, when, when COVID canceled the season, it, it was an everlasting fight to stay motivated, really. You see other guys playing their college season somehow, uh, whether it was four or five games, uh, you know, I was sitting at home, you know, just watching. So I just used that as motivation, though. Uh, you know, I, I looked at it as another year to get better, uh, another year to get stronger, another year to get faster. And, um, you know, that's what I did. I, I worked my butt off. And, uh, you know, once I, I realized, you know, there's no point to, start, to feel sorry for myself or, you know, I, that's when I, you know, my gear kicked in and, you know, I just put my head down and, and I kept working and I kept working and, and I'm still working. When's the last time you didn't play like a season in the fall? My true freshman year uh, at Outerson Broadus University, um, I broke my collarbone. Uh, our first game of the season against uh, Robert Morris University, I was a freshman starter. It sent me down a real dark path uh, when I got hurt that year. So um, I, I think having that experience, uh, as a freshman, being so young, you know, just knowing the things I did to get past, it kind of with, you know, losing their season, uh, you know, as, as an older person. Now, again, going back to 2019, some of your biggest moments came during playoff games. What do you feel allows you to really shine when the stakes are the highest? Honestly, I feel like that's when I'm at my best. When I feel that that weight is on uh, my shoulders or, you know, I feel that weight on my team's shoulder, that pressure. Uh, you know, I, I think that brings out the best in me when I go out there. Slight bit more focus when you're out there. Slight bit more will. You know, when you when you put that all together out, out there and, uh, you know, you don't want to let your teammates down or the guy next to you, uh, you, you just kind of elevate your play in, in those times. And I guess that's kind of what, what fuels me in those big games. Jermaine, obviously you have a senior year coming up, but as you look back on your career at Slippery Rock so far, what is your favorite memory or game? What stands out? This is probably the easiest question you'll ask me. My favorite um, game or, or moment here at Slippery Rock was when he sat championship in 2019. It was at their place, and I'll tell you this, I can barely hear myself think. And 
you know, usually, you know, at an average Division two game, you, you don't get a huge crowd. So, uh, you know, usually when you're out there, you're able to think and process things. But their stadium was – it was rocking that day for surely. In my life, I had a few big games that I played in where I came. I came up short, uh, you know, conference championships, even going back to Little League, uh, my Little League championship, uh, I came up a game short or lost in that big game. So just to finally uh, make a comeback in that game, even though we were down, and, and to keep fighting and, and to win that game and become a champion, uh, you know, that was a moment that, you know, I still think about a lot and I'll think about until the day I leave this earth. So what is the total capacity at that stadium? How many fans? I will, honestly, I would probably say their capacity was probably around 10,000, but I'm telling you, it, it sounded like 70,000. All right, so you felt like you were at Michigan or at Ohio State somewhere, right? You were, I would have thought I was at the big house, man. What do you bring to the table? What do you think are your main strengths? I, I would definitely say my biggest strength is my speed and my quickness. Um, I could get out of my brakes very fast. Um, you know, I could change direction and, and, and beat guys to my landmarks. Have you always been the fastest guy back in high school, as long as you can remember? That's a great question because I actually I have not. Um, I, my high school coach, I was I was talking with him, Tim Boster at uh, Woodland Hills. I was talking with him about last week, and he told me I was a late bloomer. And, uh, yeah, I never really thought of it that way. I just always thought I didn't work hard enough until uh, I got to college. But to kind of think about it, I was kind of a late bloomer. I came out of high school running probably about a, a four seven, a high four seven forty. You know, I wasn't as quick as I am now. To answer your question, I, I probably haven't always been the fastest guy out there. What have you done to improve your speed? To tell us your secret. I mean, obviously many college athletes prepare for the combine, for their pro day, to try to get down from a 4.6 to a 4.4. Well, I'm talking about wide receivers. What's your secret? Tail work. If you want to be faster and you want to be a more explosive athlete, yeah, you got to incorporate uh, running up hills. Uh, you know, you got to train your body to, you know, have resistance. So when you're on that flat surface, uh, you can just bounce off of it. Um, so I think that's uh, one thing that really uh, helped me improve my speed was doing a lot of hill work during during my off seasons. Now, I can attest. I've, I've watched some of your highlights. Now, I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen you play live, but we're going to straighten that out this fall. And I, I will yes, see sir. one of those games, right? Yes, uh, yes, sir. It does seem like you're always the fastest guy in the field. Have you ever been caught from behind? And if you have, can you remember the, the game? To my memory, I don't think I have been caught from behind. Or, I no, I, maybe I have once. I got caught from behind. It was kind of slightly behind. He had a great angle. I, I'll, I'll tell you, he had a great angle. <laughs> of uh, course he did. His name was uh, Fordan Island. He's actually in the, uh, the AFL right now, or uh, one of the arena leagues. Um, he took a real good angle, and he, like, clipped my shoelace. It was barely even my shoe. Like, it was barely my head. It was, like, my shoelace. Uh, he clipped it, and, and I tumbled over right on, I think, about the five-yard line. Well, you're not only a receiver, but you're also a returner for your team. You've been a kick returner before. You're, you're a dangerous punt returner. Talk about that aspect of your game. What do you think makes you a dangerous return man? What makes me a dangerous return man, honestly, is, you know, Whenever I, whenever that ball gets in my hand, you know, my my mindset is that I'm going to go put points on the board for my team. Uh, you know, I, I look at returning as, you know, an opportunity to, to help my team out, you know, to help my team win the game. It's kind of like a, not a free throw, but 
you know, it's kind of like a free play for me to get the ball in my hands right away and, you know, make some moves and, and, and bring us home and put some points on the board. So, uh, you know, I think just my mindset as a returner of wanting to score and my, my will to finish the play uh, is what helps me be a good returner. Uh, Jermaine, you've probably heard many times, you know, the wide receiver position referred to as divas, okay? What's your view on that? Honestly, you know, there's probably a few diva receivers, you know, uh, probably on the higher level. Uh, I've Honestly, I haven't really seen a diva receiver in my career in college, you know, as a teammate. I'm not sure how other guys are, but, you know, on the college level, we're all trying to fight to get to the next level. So you, you're probably not going to see much of that you know, at the college level. But in the NFL, I I do think that, you know, there's some diva receivers in the NFL who, you know, they just want the ball all the time or they want the ball forced to them. Uh, I'm not going to say any names, but, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure there's situations like that uh, in, in, in the NFL. I was going to ask you, do you recall any diva moments of your own? But it sounds like uh, that hasn't happened. But can you think of one where maybe – I don't know. You, you're not getting the ball. You're, you're running the right routes. You're not open. You got to be like signaling your quarterback, like, "Hey." I don't. I don't think I've had any true diva moments. Um, you know, there's times where my competitive nature, you know, will bring me to, you know, my old line or my quarterback, and you know, tell them like, "Yo, let's let's go pick it up," or or, or we got to up our sense of urgency, fellas. Like, let's go or or QB, you know. You know, get your head in the game or anything of that nature. But, you know, I'm never the type to really go and, and bag for the ball because, you know, I just understand, you know, the game, how the game flows. You know, it'll come my way eventually if I keep working and, you know, I keep doing my job because, you know, if I'm not getting a ball or, or or if I'm not open, that means that, you know, there's another guy, uh, another receiver getting open. So, Great answer. You mentioned your coach uh, and your high, your high school coach and your high school, Woodland Hills. For those that don't know this area or whatever, but in western Pennsylvania, Woodland Hills is one of the, I don't want to say it's an NFL factory, but there's certainly a, a bunch of guys that have come out of there that have gone on to great things. I mean, Hall of Famer, Jason Taylor, uh, Shante Spencer, I think, is still playing in the league. Miles Sanders, Rontez Miles, Quentin Jefferson, uh, one of my favorites, Steve Breston, I actually saw him play in a game for Wood- Woodland Hills, and he went on to be a receiver for uh, the Arizona Cardinals and was a, g- a good player in the NFL. Uh, hell, even Gronk uh, tr- transferred in for his senior year and then uh, was able to play a few games. You, you know, there was some controversy there. But anyway, I, just, I, I don't want to ramble here. I just want to ask, ask you your question. How do you use that rich tradition to kind of fuel you to excel? It's for surely, uh, it's motivation for me. Uh, you know, even going back and, and lifting in our weight room and just seeing all the, uh, all the greats and all the NFL players, alumni that are, you know, that moved on to do great things and seeing their pictures all over the weight room and all over the school, it, it's motivating because I want to be that guy that, you know, my picture's up there and my helmet is hanging on coach's helmet wall. You know, I, I want to be there someday. So, um, you know, just knowing that those guys came from the same area as me and, you know, and, and went through the program I went through, uh, you know, coached by the same coaches, uh, it motivates me and it makes me believe that, you know, I could follow the same path and I could do similar things. Um, you know, Miles Sanders, he, he was even my high school teammate uh, for, for four years. So, uh, you know, just seeing him and, and the way he got, he worked and the situation and the level that he's on now uh, is very motivating for me. And, you know, it, it's what keeps me going every day because, you know, I know for a fact that 
if I keep working and doing what I got to do, I could follow their footsteps. I mean, obviously you're from Pennsylvania. Are you a Pittsburgh Steelers fan? I'm a diehard Steelers fan. Since the moment I was born, I was a Steelers fan. It runs in the family. It must have. I mean, what have the Steelers meant to you growing up? The Steelers, they have a really, really, you know, special heart, you know, just for the simple fact, you know, those Sundays, you know, those, whether it was 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, you know, waiting all day for a night game, you know, whenever those, those Pittsburgh Steelers were on TV, you know, nothing else in the world mattered. You know, any problems, you know, anything negative, you know, whatever it was, nothing else mattered for for those four hours and, and those Pittsburgh Steelers were on TV. And, you know, it's almost uh, until this day Pittsburgh Steelers games have that effect on me. So the Steelers meant a lot to me growing up. So who's your favorite NFL player? Is it somebody from the Pittsburgh Steelers? It's somebody that that once was a part of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I, I wish he still was. Uh, I wish things, you know, panned out differently between that situation. But my favorite player of all time is Antonio Brown. Obviously, he's one of the better route runners out there. When you watch him play, how do you transfer it to your game? Honestly, man, everything. I've I've watched so much film and studies every aspect of Antonio Brown's game. You know, the way he creates separation while not being the biggest guy, not being the fastest. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of guys, 5'10", 195 pounds. Uh, there's a bunch of guys that can run fast or faster than Antonio Brown, but it's his work ethic and, and, his, and his mindset that, that allows him to, you know, be great and, and separate himself from, from other players. You know, I follow him on Snapchat, actually, and he posts his workout every day. And there was a point in my in my college career where I would get up, watch his Snapchat, and mimic every workout every day. Earlier, you were asked the question about a diva wide receiver. He's got to be on top of that list. Uh, yeah, I do think, you know, you know he, he panned out to be kind of uh, a diva wide receiver, you know, his, his last few years in Pittsburgh. Uh, but I also think uh, Antonio Brown kind of, in a way, was misunderstood. And, you know, I, I think he handled a lot of things wrong. And, you know, hopefully, you know, just going forward to the end of, the, end of his career, he can he can keep his – his act clean and eventually become a role model. Well, it wasn't in a Pittsburgh Steelers uniform, but he did win a Super Bowl with the Bucks. I was extremely happy, uh, you know, when he won a Super Bowl, especially when he scored. And it's funny because I, I read an article that uh, he probably ran a wrong route. They, they were saying on on the on the touchdown that he scored in the Super Bowl, but I mean, it's a, it's a B at this point. You mentioned earlier that you began your college career at Alderson Brodus. Why did you transfer to Slippery Rock? What made it the right school for you? I left Otterson Brothers just because um, my family was having trouble getting down to the games to, um, you know, watch me play. So, and that was real important to me was, was my mom and uh, my niece and my nephew uh, for them to be able to watch me because I know how much they enjoy watching me play. And, um, you know, the three-and-a-half-hour commute uh, sometimes was just too much. So um, I wanted to come back home, somewhere closer to home. And it was hard to say no to Slippery Rock when, when they were recruiting me. You know, Coach Lutz called me every single day, probably about eight times a day. Uh, he was sending me text messages. Uh, you know, it was just hard to say no to, you know, people who showed that they wanted me so much. So uh, that's why I ended up here. What has your head coach, Coach Lutz, meant to your career and that offensive staff as well, the guys who coach the offense, what have they meant to you? These guys have meant a lot to me, uh, and I say to this day, you know, I made the best decision of my 
of my life coming here to Slippery Rock uh, when, I, when I decided to transfer. Um, you know, they they taught me to just have a, a relentless mindset and, and, and be relentless in everything that I do. Uh, you know, that, that's our slogan that we use here. Uh, you know, that's what we build our foundation as a team on is, is being relentless. And, uh, you know, when times get tough, be relentless. Don't give up, you know, because all the tough times don't last forever. You just got to keep going. You got you to gotta keep pushing. And, you know, they, these guys taught me a lot. And, you know, I'm glad that I ended up here. You know, Slippery Rock has one of the coolest traditions. I mean, every player gets a chance to touch the actual rock once they get on the field right before kickoff. So how does that inspire your team? How does that inspire the, the entire football squad once you, you get out there? There's a lot of pride with that rock, man. You know, when when you touch that rock, it just it sends a, a jolt down your body. And I, every time I touch it, I get chills just because I know, uh, you know, how many players uh, did the same thing, ran down there and touched that same rock and performed on that same field. So, you know, whenever I, you know, get, go out there and touch that rock, man, it, it's just a different feeling. And, you know, I, I think I can speak for the rest of my teammates uh, in saying that. So, you know, a lot of people don't know um, back in, I, I believe, 2001, it could have been 2003, um, our rival IUP, um, they scored on that end zone. And uh, it, it was for the game. They actually won. And they went over and danced on our rock. And they stood on the rock. There ended up being a big fight and a big brawl. Guys got suspended. And, uh, you know, and I, that's really what increased the rivalry between uh, Slippery Rock and, and IUP. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of pride in that rock. So, you know, touching it, it, it turns us up. So you guys have never let that incident go. I mean, you still remember it deep in your mind when you faced them. To this day, you know, uh, Coach, he, uh, he, he made sure to reference it every IUP week year, uh, every, every single year. You know, he, he made sure we remember what happened and what they did on that rock. And we actually got to my home again this year. So that game plans to probably have around 12 to 15K people. Uh, and that's always a fun game to play in. Well, you've talked a lot about family, pride, so forth, Jermaine, as, as we've kind of gone through this interview. You did have some adversity. You lost uh, your older brother to, in a car accident when you were only 14. If I read the interview right, you mentioned that uh, you went out and got a job just to, to help out your family. What did that whole experience teach you about yourself and then furthermore just about life? Losing my brother was prob probably the toughest toughest adversity that I had to deal with in my life because of, you know, I lost my, my dad when I was one years old. So growing up, my brother was pretty much my, my father figure and that positive male role model for me. So, uh, you know, losing him, you know, that made it even tougher. But, you know, I just knew that I had to step up and I had to have a bigger role in my family. So <clears throat> I started working. Uh, I wanted to help my sister uh, sister out around the house. I wanted to help my mom out. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it just taught me that I had to grow up a little bit a little bit sooner than, you know, most kids have had to. And, um, you know, I, I took on that challenge and I wanted to help. So, you know, I never looked at it as uh, adversity. I never looked at it as, you know, an unfortunate situation because I knew uh, regardless, you know, I, I had to I had to deal with it and, and I had to I had to be there and I had to help. So now that I'm being older, uh, look back on it. I think that's why I don't feel pressure. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier in these big football games, those playoff games, you know, you know, I don't really feel that pressure because I, I face great, much greater pressure in my life than, you know, uh, you know, big football playoff games. I think that's, that's what I learned about myself, you know, facing those situations. 
and uh, transferring those to your football career? I mean, you mentioned, you know, stepping up in big games, but is anything else that you've been able to kind of transfer those lessons to make you a better player? Well, yeah, I mean, I just always, when I'm out there, I just got to have that mindset that, you know, nothing, nothing can break me, nothing. Anything out here I can face, and you know, anyone, you know, I don't care how big I am, I don't care how big you are, you know, when I'm out there, I just have a mindset that, you know, nothing can break me. And, and you know, and, and when I'm out there, I try to think that, you know, I'm, I'm the best on the field. So, you know, taking those lessons from life, you know, just be unbreakable. There was an incident on campus not too long ago, and during COVID, social social unrest, a lot of tension out there. So I'm sure every college campus is not immune to that. Something happened. Some of your friends had experienced what the school paper had termed racially motivated Zoom bombing, and you took action. Describe what happened and the steps that you took and, and maybe what explain what uh, a Zoom bombing is. Okay, well, uh, yeah, this this past semester, we, like you said, we had an incident where, you know, some uh, anonymous, uh, I guess you can call them hackers, they, they bombed a Zoom meeting between us. We're already here uh, at Slippery Rock. So what I mean by Zoom bombing is they somehow got into the Zoom call anonymously, uh, and they were under uh, uh, faux names where it would be, you know, any type of racist name. And, and then while, while they were in the call, um, they would send explicit photos of you know racial pictures and things like that and uh you know in that situation specifically you know hit hit close to home because it's my school and uh they were my friends uh in that sorority so um you know originally we just felt that you know our university didn't you know shed enough light you know on that situation you know i just took it on beyond myself to uh reach out to to our head coach uh and ask if he can reach out to the school president and, and maybe have a, a talk or, or a meeting with the sorority members and myself just to, you know, you know, get an idea of how they were handling the situation and, you know, what action they were going to take going forward and preventing other things like this from happening around campus. So, you know, I, the action I took was, you know, just to try to get some more attention on it. They're in the sorority and they're my friends. They reached out to me and, you know, they were displeased. So, you know, with my platform being a football player, I was able to, you know, shed some light on it and, and get a meeting so that we can get a better better explanation on, you know, what they were going to do to prevent these type of things from happening on campus. Did the university find the perpetrators? Uh, they weren't able to, actually. Uh, they were using emails registered from, like, countries, like, uh, from all over the place, you know, uh, overseas, anywhere. Um, there was, like, New Zealand, uh, emails from Middle Eastern places, and it was – it was too much, uh, I guess, for uh, our university to, to uh, try to figure out. Um, and it actually happened at Penn State and one other college that I can't remember. They just felt like it wasn't targeted, you know, specifically at Slippery Rock. And, you know, I guess they launched a, a, an investigation, uh, got the FBI involved. But since then, I haven't heard if they've actually caught the people or, you know, found out who, who's responsible. Well, you did your part, Jermaine. I'm sure your classmates, uh, you know, appreciate that as well as your coach and the university president. It's a very uh, commendable thing to do and to to, to get involved. Uh, where, where does that come from? The, I guess that call to action. What what made you feel like you needed to step in? You know, like I said, you know, I felt like I needed to step in because you know I have the platform, you know, around this this community to be able to 
have our voices reach a you know a higher a higher up audience and you know I can easily go and ask my head coach you know who I know has a great relationship with the president you know I can easily go and say coach you know I'm feeling this type of way you know you know the students here uh, the black students here at Slippery Rock are feeling this way and you know I think it's important that you help me you know reach out to the president so uh, he can hear us out and we can hear him out you know not every student has the opportunity you know not every student is a football player. Uh, you know, not every student is a captain or, you know, anyone, uh, you know, respected enough to reach out to people like that. And, um, you know, I just think that was my, my part in it. And, you know, I felt like that was my call, call in action was to was to make sure that our voices are heard as, as black students here at Slippery Rock. Well, again, kudos to you. Great sharing time with you today. It was a great interview. Before we let you go, if you want to let our listeners know how to check you out on your socials, go ahead and give your handles. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, on Instagram, you can follow me. Uh, it's my, my nickname when I was younger, Maino, M-A-I-N-O, uh, the number 100, and then K, Maino 100K. And then uh, on Twitter, you can follow me, underscore Just Win, just like my last name, Just W-Y-N-N. Very cool. Well, I wish you the best of luck this season. I'm really counting on being able to see you in one of those games this year. And, uh, again, thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you guys for having me on, man. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our time uh, last summer, and I enjoyed it again. I love just, you know, talking football with you guys and kind of getting things off my chest. You guys asked a lot of great questions, and, you know, hopefully I'm back on here soon. All right, great kid, Jermaine Wynn, Jr., wide receiver, Slippery Rock University. Again, as we mentioned at the top, we're a month away from training camps opening up. What are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about a list somebody else's list. Alex, we're going to talk about a list today. How how do you feel about that? I feel good because this guy has been making headlines. I mean, he's been making lists for the past couple of years when it comes to, you know, draft eligible quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers. I mean, he's been digging deep and he has become the, the trusted source when it comes to draft stuff. Because when Chris Sims comes out with the list, He makes some headlines. I mean, I remember when this college football season, I mean, he was really down on Justin Fields, really down on Justin Fields, and he was hyping up Zach Wilson. I mean, he had him as the number one quarterback over Trevor Lawrence. Well, yeah, and I guess sometimes you wonder if these things are done by design. Uh, Is it uh, clickbait, if you would? I truly believe Chris Sims believes in his his convictions. I don't think he's doing that for that. But, again, in some ways, you know, you, you hear him talk. It may not necessarily sound exactly like his dad, but a lot of the, you know, you can tell he's his father's son, right? So some of the things he says go against the grain, go against the norm, but he'll sit there and he'll, he has the courage of his convictions. So uh, without further ado, he puts out his uh, Sims Top 40 quarterback countdown. I mean, he's talked to everybody about it. Eisen, Dan Patrick, obviously his partner Florio, and maybe everybody else that'll listen in his uh, buttoned up or buttoned down uh, podcast. No surprise, Pat Mahomes is at the top of the list. I don't think there's any, there, there was going to be any question there. Uh, might have been some, you know, some people might like Rodgers, but uh, in this case, Patrick Mahomes. Now, again, when you look at these lists, I guess there's got to be some context 
Tom Brady at number 10? I mean, that's the first question mark right there. How can Tom Brady be number 10? But, but if you look at it as, okay, beginning this season, if I want to go win a game, who are the guys that I want to be my quarterback? Some people might say Brady because he's won all these games, won all these championships. But who are the better players? Has he taken into context his the rest of his team? The, but no, because Deshaun Watson would not be number four then. So I don't know. What was your old, just kind of general sense when you looked at it? I think when Sims posted his list of the top 40 quarterbacks, I think he has taken into context that some guys might be over the hill. Like, he's looking at the future. I mean, I look at his list, and you put Josh Allen over Aaron Rodgers, right? So he's thinking Josh Allen still has room to grow, that he's still going to take his game even further because Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he won the MVP last year, but he believes that the way Josh Allen played in his third year, he certainly deserves the spot behind Patrick Mahomes. I do have some question marks about top 10. I think, like, in my opinion, I would have Russell Wilson, like, over Deshaun Watson. Like, in my opinion, I would have Dak Prescott most likely in the top five. But that's my own personal feeling, just because I think if we're talking about the future, I think Prescott has a lot to prove. And I think he's got a great team around him, offensive team around him. And I think if if he stays healthy, he's going to be putting up some huge numbers. He's going to take that step forward. I do think Tom Brady is a bit lower than where I would have put him initially. I think he would be in my top seven just because he, he went to the Bucks. He's 43 years old. He won a Super Bowl. He might not be putting up those huge numbers like the rest of the guys, but this guy is on point, and I would just give him that respect that he deserves to be in the top seven. I do think, like, Baker Mayfield is way too high at 13. I do have, like, the Browns as my dark horse to win the Super Bowl this year, or at least advance to the Super Bowl this year. But still, it's not because of Baker Mayfield. So having him at 13 ahead of guys like Derek Carr, Matt Ryan, to me that seems a bit preposterous. Well, I guess, and and I think you said it best, where he was maybe looking at some of these guys, or some of the guys being maybe not over the hill, but kind of you know regressing as players. Where I think his idea of having Baker Mayfield higher is he seems to be ascending, whereas I think Derek Carr has kind of reached as good as he's going to get. Again, he can become more efficient and so forth, but we know what Derek Carr is. We know what Matt Ryan is, Kirk Cousins, most of these guys. Now, Burrow obviously coming off an injury now at number 17, that plays into it. Then he groups together like the two guys. These are like could be like the darlings of the league and the teams that let them go are going to look ridiculous or they can be look like the teams that let them go got rid of them at the right time. So 18, he's got Carson Wentz. 19, he's got Darnold. And a lot of it is going to be, with these two guys, I think is going to be, I guess, the, the team that they around them. And Carson Wentz, I think he has him ahead of Darnold just because that the team around him is 
more established. The offensive line is established. Might need some more weapons, but the running game is there. The offensive line is there. Whereas Darnold, there are some question marks, and the team is building, and I think it's going to get better, and he's going to have a good year. I can't, So I can't complain too much about those. Newton at 20, you know, that's kind of iffy to me. I mean, we still don't know what, what we're going to get from Cam. I think we have to give him the benefit of the doubt when he came back after COVID that maybe that kind of, I don't know, messed with his body more than uh, than it appeared to to. But it looks like other athletes have had the same situations when they've come back from COVID, not quite as crisp as they were. So let's see what happens this season. And that's even if he wins the job, right? Mac Jones, he's got listed at number 30. Non-specific starter, if you would, is in the top 32, which if you look, there's 32 teams, right? To wrap up the top 10, for those of you that haven't seen the list, it's Mahomes, Allen, Rogers, Watson, Wilson, uh, Lamar, Kyler Murray, Matthew Stafford at 8. That's a very trendy pick these days, and he must be friends with uh, with Sean McVay. But Prescott at nine, and then Brady ten. We've we've kind of uh, hit on that a little bit. You know, I don't know. You know who who you really move around in this in this field because again, from the guys that are ascending versus guys that we kind of know where they are. I think he he's got it right for the most part. And Stafford is a little bit different because he's going to a, a, a new team, better organization. Maybe he has plateaued being with a better team. He's going to perform much better. I'm not going to take too much issue with the top 10. Will he? I'm in the math, Matt Stafford. Yes, he is going to be better there. I'm on Team Matthew. I have my doubts about it, Lou. And here's my problem with it. Matthew Stafford hasn't won a damn thing. He has put up some huge numbers in Detroit, especially in the fourth quarter, throwing for all those touchdowns when they're down 30 to nothing, getting those 300-plus passing yards. It's all fun and good against those prevent defenses. I always felt like Matthew Stafford was one of those overrated quarterbacks because he's never taken his team anywhere you know there's been some other quarterbacks I want to bring up Aaron Rodgers and I realize that Green Bay is a better team but Aaron Rodgers didn't have the huge weapons around him Matthew Stafford had Calvin Johnson there for a while and I mean a while it wasn't only like one or two seasons I realized that Jordy Nelson James Jones they're not in the class of Calvin Johnson but the rest of the team was better and I think that's where the whole Stafford thing that people that are, I guess, are in my camp on this are looking at is that with that type of talent of his own meshed with more well-rounded talent around him versus just having one guy. You know, it was basically him, Ian Calvin Johnson. So I hear what you're saying. I think maybe a lot can be said about Dak Prescott as well, putting up a lot of empty numbers. Matthew Stafford never was able to elevate his team into the playoffs. Sometimes you're not going to have, you know, a great defense. You're not going to have those weapons. But I always felt like Matthew Stafford, for some reason, got a break from, yeah, well, he plays in Detroit. You know? Let's see what he does at a winning well, because organization. he did play in Detroit, and they're awful. What yes. I'm saying is, when I watched, and I didn't watch a lot of Detroit games because it's painful to watch. But when they played against the Green Bay Packers in the first three quarters, you see Matthew Stafford throw for like 100 passing yards 
and then a couple of picks. And then in the fourth quarter, when Green Bay is up by four touchdowns, they're playing prevent defense, and Matthew Stafford gets to 300-plus passing yards, and he throws for a couple of touchdowns. So his numbers look good. This is the point that I'm trying to make. Matthew Stafford is never good when it matters the most, when it matters in the crunch. What happens in the NFC West, Lou? I mean, this is the toughest division in football. You've got the Arizona Cardinals. You've got the Seattle Seahawks. You've got the San Francisco 49ers. What are you going to do? There are no cupcakes in this division at this point. The brands are no slouch. I guess that's the point is they, I think, have, I don't want to say equal talent to San Francisco, but it's, I mean, I don't think the difference is that great. And you throw in now highly talented and competent quarterback that can push the ball downfield when you need to, it's going to make a difference. Where does he belong? Yeah, he's outside of the top 10 for me. He should not sniff the top 10. I'm skeptical, and I guess we'll see this year what Matthew Stafford is made of. He's not 25 years old. He's over 30. He has had some major injuries with his back, and they're not going to go away. So in my opinion, yeah, he has Cooper Cup. He has Robert Woods. He's got a running game in Cam Akers. He's got a good offensive line, and, and that was the number one defense last year. I'm sure they'll regress a bit, but he has a better team. I, I agree with that. But when was the last time you saw a quarterback from a losing franchise who hasn't won a lot of games but put up some good numbers that went to a, a winning team and took his team to the, the Super Bowl? When has that happened? Come on, let's well, go back in the memory. Well, I guess it would be more so, I guess, looking at the fact that his pedigree, come, well, one, coming out of Georgia. Now, again, he, you can you know say he really didn't win much at Georgia. Uh, he he didn't. didn't really win much at Detroit. But, okay, let's give him an opportunity with the players around him. And I look at it the other way as, okay, I don't know, let's put Patrick Mahomes on Detroit. Maybe they, they win a few more games, but he isn't going to be playing in Super Bowls year after year playing in Detroit. So again, I think we have to give Stafford the benefit of the doubt. Now, maybe some people are a little bit more high on him, obviously, than you are, and that's fine, and I get that, all the criticisms. I mean, when we, uh, I think we had Dave Burkett on, that was one of the questions I asked him, is what, does he have a signature win? And no, he really doesn't. But again, I think this list, we're looking at, okay, what's going to happen this year? Let's take a look at the second 10 real quick. I think we've mentioned most of them, but you know, we have some issue with Brady being 10. But then Justin Herbert at 11, I think that that's fair. He's shown at least for one season that he can do it and looks like he's going to be there for a while. Tannehill at 12, uh, Baker at 13, Carr 14, Matt Ryan 15, Kirk Cousins 16, Joe Burrow, 17, Wentz and Darnold, 18, 19, Cam Newton at 20. Anybody raise your eyebrows there? I mean, I mentioned Newton a little bit. Yeah, that would be mine to say that that might be a bit high for him. I wouldn't have Kirk Cousins at 16. I think I would have him outside of the top 20. I mean, with all due respect, you know, if we are betting on the future, on the upside, Justin Herbert, I love at 11, but I would also put Burrow somewhere there at 12 or 13 just because I think his future looks brighter than, say, Baker Mayfield. I also would put Derek Carr and Matt Ryan, and I would probably have Matt Ryan closer to the top 10, if not in the top 10. And this isn't based on what he has done in the past and the fact that he's probably going to be a Hall of Fame type of quarterback. you got to give him respect. Matt Ryan is still playing at a higher level than, say, 
you know, even Ryan Tannehill or Baker Mayfield or Matthew Stafford, for that matter. So I would switch those around a little bit. And again, Kirk Cousins will not be in my top 20. I think it's safe to say Matty Ice does not get the respect that he probably has earned. And granted, they only played in one Super Bowl. The team melted down around him at the end. They should have won that game. Okay, I'm going to editorialize there for a second. But yeah, and I think the, the trend that I'm seeing here is, is some of, with some of these picks and, and where he's listed the guys, I think... And that's maybe where some of the consistency might be lost is where I think he is considering the team a bit when it came to, okay, within this 10, where does Joe Burrow fit? Just the fact that Cincinnati's not that good, so he's putting Minnesota, you know, Cousins ahead of him because the Vikings, you know, are going to be a little bit better or that the Falcons might be a little bit better. The Raiders, I don't get that one, but it's his list. Well, Deshaun Watson is in the top four. He is. And talent-wise, and and that's where the inconsistency is because at that point you can't say the team around him. He doesn't really have a team right now, and the team he did have sucked. So what do you do? I think in this case now he's just looking at the talent. Put him on another team, and you know he you know, arguably he could be at number two. Yeah, I mean, it is a little, you know, inconsistent. And I guess reading between the lines, you know, maybe that's not the case. We need to get Sims on explain himself. Put that on the list. Look, I don't understand how Andy Dalton can check in at number 29 and Jared Goff will be at, like, 31. That I don't get. Or Tua, like, 34. I mean, you have to think that Tua is going to be better and he should be ahead of somebody yeah. like Andy Dalton. There's two non-starters in the top 30. And I also listen to Sims. I know that he's high on Kellen Mond, who went in the third round to the Huge, Vikings. huge. But how Love can them. he? But how can he be ahead of Trey Lance? I mean, it's just it doesn't make sense because Lance is on the cusp of probably being a starting quarterback there, and Kellen Mond is. And Justin, right and he's ahead of Justin Fields too. But again, he kind of had his you prefaced the whole thing when he talked about how he how down he was on Justin Fields during the season. I guess we can nitpick. I mean, everybody well, has sure. their list. That's what we're doing. Like that, and that's what we're doing. <laughs> Again, I, I will say this. Matthew Stafford does not deserve to be in the top 10. Baker Mayfield at 13 just seems way too high. And, and Kirk Cousins at 16. I don't know. He should be somewhere at like how about 25. The th- how about the third 10? Uh, Jimmy G, Ben at, at 22. It's Magic at 23, and then he goes with these entries. And what I mean by entries is two guys back-to-back on the same team. So, again, it looks like I'm saying, well, whoever wins this competition for New Orleans is going to have that spot. And then down at 32 and 33, whoever wins that competition between Bridgewater and Luck has that spot. So, Taysom Hill, 24, Jameis Winston, 25, Daniel Jones, Zach Wilson, Trevor Lawrence, Again, he's consistent there. He had Wilson ahead of him in the draft, so I guess he thought that he had to put him ahead of him now. And you mentioned Dalton at 29, Mac Jones at 30. He was consistent there, Lou. He was. He he was. was, He was high on Mac Jones coming out of college. Well, he kept kept pushing that narrative before the draft that San Francisco had moved up for him. So I guess, again, his friend fooled him. And then you mentioned Goff at 31, and then the entry of Bridgewater and Locke, 32-33, Tua 34. In the third 10, any issues there other than uh, 
Dalton ahead of Goff. Yeah, I just think Dalton should be off this list completely. He should not be in the top 40. The young guys can get pushed up. I could buy even like Kellen Mond if you're high on him. They, he could be on this list. I just don't understand how, you know, Andy Dalton is on this list. I mean, what has he done? What are his accomplishments out there? I mean, he's the backup quarterback now, in, in my opinion, because I think Justin Fields is going to win that job. Everything that is coming out of Chicago is basically pointing in that direction. Tyrod Taylor at 35, Mariota at 36, Kellen Mond at 37, Trey Lance 38, Justin Fields 39, and Case Keenum. Yes, that Case Keenum, Cleveland Browns at number 40. I guess a couple of things just before we wrap this up. One, Jalen Hurts doesn't make the list. Now, say what you will, but yeah, he's starting quarterback in the NFL, so you would think he'd make the top 40. There's only 32 teams. Remember that. That was a little strange. The Tua being outside of the top 32 obviously does not like Tua. And the other thing is that it seems like, you go back in your memory banks, the talent level, I guess, overall, does it seem like it's deeper? More teams have a capable starter than have in a long time. That's a great question. Now, half of the teams are still struggling to find a capable starter in this league. I still think that you know some guys are being overrated and uh, we're pushing some guys up a bit. Yeah, they always are, but I guess just specifically, are there, you know, I mean, it just seems like in the past, I think you really had to make, this would have been a much easier task, right? It seems like it's a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult because a lot of these guys are maybe, it's equal talent, is it not as good talent as it was in the past? I don't know, but it seems like just ranking these guys is more difficult because it's so razor thin, the differences. Like you mentioned with the Saints and the Broncos, I mean, basically you put those guys together by saying that whoever wins that job deserves to be there. That's just me editorializing. I don't know. I mean, it, but it just seemed it awfully coinc- it seemed awfully coincidental. Yeah, it looks that way. Like he's basically saying whoever wins that job, you know, is going to be in there, and whoever loses might, you know, drop down. But I'll put them at like 24, 25, and. You know, I'll put them at like 32, 33. I mean, you mentioned that a lot of teams have good quarterbacks. I think the offensive systems have changed, Lou. And, oh, uh, yeah. You know, yeah no the, the NFL is more like college type of offense, and that's why we see these guys transitioning. And it's easier. They, they get going a lot quicker, that's for sure. Before, people were getting drafted. They would come in, you know, why don't you run that pro-style offense? And he doesn't know how to do that. He doesn't understand the terminology. You know, he can't call plays in the huddle. You know, he can't, like, take three, five, seven-step drops from center because they were asking guys to do that. And that's why we're not seeing as many busts in terms of quarterbacks because teams have caught on a bit. I mean, they've adjusted. They've made those offenses a little bit more friendly, a little more air raid, three, four, five wide receiver sets. And, you know, they're making life a lot easier on these guys transitioning from college to the NFL. And it seems to make sense, right? Because, you know, you look at it from the monetary standpoint, you know, if you're going to take a guy, you want to know if he can play by like year two, right? Or year three. I mean, you've got got a clock. That fifth-year option is coming quickly. And and then you also have to decide whether you're going to make a huge investment. So I guess that's part of it too, is that not just, hey, let's make it easier 
to for the transition, but hey, we only got this much time. You know, Aaron Rodgers would have never happened in this era. He would have played right away. Or I don't know that the Packers would have taken him if they had Brett Favre, right? You got to adapt at the times, and uh, money is a big part of it, as well as just, hey, we can get these guys playing right away. More young guys playing, less the decisions they have to make, or just getting uh, confused by play calls or where they need to be, you know, all these different things. Make it simpler, and here we go. You know, I don't, is it a better game? I don't know. That's a conversation for another day. To wrap this thing up, we love Chris Sims. We love his opinions. I love that he puts himself out there with different varying things that don't always go with the conventional wisdom, so to speak, and uh, gives us something to talk about. All right, before we get out of here, our non-football football topic that we've been hitting, and it, it was kind of a reluctant thing at first, but now we got to see it through. It's the Euros, Euros 2020, and we know Alex doesn't like that since it's 2021. But anyway, we have reached the quarterfinals. We're down to eight teams. I think I would mentioned to you in a text at some point that the left side of the bracket looked brutal. Three games went extra time. One of those went to penalties. There was a one nothing game. So you got Belgium, Italy, Switzerland, and Spain left on that side. The other side was a bunch of shutouts, but then yesterday was a great game. I mean, I don't, it was a, two teams that were just gassed at the end. I mean, you could just tell they were on their last, last breath. But it ended up 2-1. Goal in the 121st minute, which is the 31st minute of overtime for those you uh, American football fans. And Ukraine makes it through. I think it's their first time ever, right, in an international competition into the quarterfinals. Yeah, that's, they, they certainly reached the feet. England moved on. That hasn't happened in a while. I mean, usually they... They don't win those games in the in the round of sixteen or the quarterfinals. You got Edge, Edge Sheeran, David Beckham, and the Prince and Princess or Duke of Cambridge, whatever he is, all there at Wembley. They couldn't lose, right? Well, they certainly brought them luck, and you, you <laughs> could say that. And you you can't say the same for France. I mean, they looked like they had the game wrapped up. They had the lead three to one. And all of a sudden on the 80th minute, you know, Switzerland scored, and then they scored on the 90th minute. And then in penalty kicks, you know, our boy, our star, we've been hyping him up, Mbappe. That was like a Roberto Baggio moment right there. Can we not do that again? This is the second time you're mentioning Baggio. But that's like the famous, you know, the the famous player not, you know, making it with the penalty kicks. I mean, they always show the highlights of it. Okay, well, just for those that that may have missed it, it was uh, they each team gets five kicks. They alternate. France, who they play? Switzerland. Switzerland. Switzerland, they hit their first five. France had hit their last four. Mbappe, their best player, who really didn't look good during the game, missed some opportunities, didn't even look right physically. I don't know, something, he was like out of sorts, and he missed the kick. The game is over, and Switzerland moves on. It was uh, pretty amazing. I did want to mention Pogba, though. One of the best goal celebrations I've seen, and maybe not the best, but it was completely different than everybody else. Most guys run around pumping fists in the air, sliding on their knees towards the the corner or towards their fans. Pogba kind of posed, right? Did a little shimmy, a little dance. Remind me a little Chad Johnson, actually, right? 
Maybe he's watching him. I don't know. Maybe he's watching American football. I, I doubt it. But Pogba was, was one of the best players at this Euro Cup. I mean, he certainly, like, elevated France's play. And, and that goal was beautiful, the one that Big he scored. dude. Absolutely. Yeah, the goal that he scored was, you know, well-struck, top of the box. I mean, just everything about him. Just He just looks like a, a, a great player. And that's probably this, only the second time I've seen him play. But there was some sort of watch or clockmaker reference that I had, but but Zuber, Zuber, the creator, assist, and then he drew the penalty to get the penalty kick, and then they missed it. Switzerland misses the penalty kick, and it was like the wake-up call. Within a minute, France scores like twice. You think the game's over. Well, France was everyone's favorite, Lou, and and now the the favorite team is out, and who you got now? I mean, are you on the Italian bandwagon? You know who my favorite is. I've never been on the bandwagon. I am the bandwagon. Come on. They've got a tough game in the quarterfinals. Of course, Belgium is, well, they're not in this tournament, but they've Coming into the tournament, they were saying they were the number one ranked team in the world, whatever that means. But uh, Lukaku, big scorer, looks like he could play linebacker. De Bruyne, he's kind of like the playmaker, but he's questionable for the game. Uh, The older Hazard uh, is questionable for the game. The younger Hazard, he was the one that scored the goal in the game against Portugal. Again, another great strike, well outside the box, kind of dipping away from the goalie. Yeah, there have been some some really big plays. If you're patient enough to watch, you are going to see some great athletic plays. You just have to be patient to kind of bide your time through the where teams are kind of running the ball, so to speak, and kind of keep the possession, take some time off the clock, get some rest. It's been great theater. It's been, what, three weeks now? This, today was the first day with no games. The next games are on Friday. I'm psyched. Yeah, and the quarterfinal games are set. Switzerland against Spain, Belgium against Italy, Czech Republic against Denmark, and the last game is Ukraine against England. Right now I'm looking at this. I mean, the Belgium-Italy winner is most likely going to advance to the final, and then I have to give it to England. I mean, last time England won an international competition was in 1966, and they were holding it at home. It was the World Cup. Well, technically, I mean, they've got the semifinal games at Wembley. They've got the final at Wembley. This is like a home tournament for England once it gets down to it. So I'm betting my money on England right now, Lou, ever since, you know, France went down. A couple fashion things I wanted to wanted to bring up: the Spanish coach wearing jeans on the sidelines. I know coaches, things you know, NBA they've kind of relaxed. They're wearing the quarter zips or half zips on the sideline. No more suits. First, I thought that was just a bubble thing, but that's I guess they're just not going to wear suits anymore. Most of these guys, the the other managers of the teams, are you know very well suited up. But what, what do you make of that? Is that a normal for for coaches to just like, hey, white dress shirt and jeans on the sideline? The Liverpool coach never wears a suit, and that's Klopp, uh, the German coach. He always wears like you know, kind of a soccer type of you know, um, you know, jacket, whether it's Adidas or Nike. So I mean, more like more like a player that's not playing. More like a player. I mean, yeah. he was a former player. I don't sure. have a problem with that. It's the summer, Lou. Why would you wear a suit 
Why would you wear well, a Most of them take the jacket off. Some a lot, like a lot of the coaches don't wear the jacket or they'll, you know, they don't wear the tie or uh, they might have the vest and no tie. But yeah, typically, you know, more like dress pants, regular shoes. But and then it's the, the other summer, thing. it's hot. I mean, hey, give right, the you, guy a break. I'm I'm with him. I mean, I would wear like a t-shirt on the sideline out there with jeans yeah, on. Yeah, well, then I would say then wear like a pair of sweats or like those those uh, tight, stretchy uh, golf pants the guys are wearing now. So anyway, that's that was my one fashion point. The other one was on the the winning goal for Ukraine. Dovbik, after he scores, rips off the shirt, and he's wearing what looks like a woman's sports bra. Any idea what that was about? What was he making some kind? Of, didn't what the Chastain? Didn't she do that for the U.S.? But it, I think she was like pimping Nike at that point because he had the swoosh on it. But it was the oddest thing I've ever seen. Do other players wear those things? Usually, you don't see that. Maybe it's his. You know, girlfriends or wife's company. Yeah. And he decided to, you know, he was a guy that came on during the overtime. He wasn't a starter, and he scored that goal. So, you know, he doesn't get on the field. He's not with the starting 11. So this was his chance to shine. You know, he scored a goal once in a lifetime opportunity. Hey, he rips it off. Maybe it's his wife's company. Who knows? Yeah, well, anyway, that just that really struck me as well. Because, one, you're like, well, we're going to penalty kicks, and then, bang, 121st minute. You're into extra time or added time of the extra time, and it was just amazing. And, I, you know, I'm not making any sort of statement about it. It just struck me as weird what he was wearing under because normally they rip the shirt off and they just there's nothing, right? Or they've got one of those compression shirts on. Never seen the sports bra on a guy. So well, had there to was bring something it. written on it. Like yeah. you know, there was something written on it. Yeah, like probably you know, so there was a logo. Yeah. I assume he was helping somebody out, whether yeah. it's his brother or his wife or maybe a friend of his. I guess they we'll see. We'll have to read in the press. I'm sure some tabloid somewhere has a story about it. All right, gang, that is going to do it for us this week. Great show, great interview, great talk about the Sims list. Till next week, he's Alex, I'm Lou. Peace!